Conductor Priorities and Finding Your Passion, an interview with Kenny Weiser, conductor of choirs at Provo High School, and a composer profile on John Dunstable. This is Early Music Monday. Conductor priorities. I remember thinking when I was studying choral music that I just, okay, cool. The goal is just to have the best choir ever and sing the best. I didn't realize that breaking down kind of my passions or the different aspects of what it means to be a choral conductor into smaller categories and then prioritizing them based on things that I was passionate about was even a thing, let alone something that was really important. And so I remember talking about this in a class, and we kind of just made a list of what are all the things that you think you would discuss as a choral conductor. We talked about tone, expression, repertoire, programming, diction, vocal technique, dynamics, artistry, text meaning, uh, you could go, and it just goes, the list can go on and on. And so we were asked to set our priorities. Now, my priorities have changed a lot since that time, which has made me ask myself, well, why did those change? What happened? It's because I had experiences that kind of imbibed these passions within me in the in the choral art. So... Sometimes we gain a passion for something all at once through one really significant experience, or we gain them over a period of time, slowly. We can help our students develop those passions as well to where they set their own musical priorities, whether they're, you know, the biggest music nerd you have in your program or in your community choir, the person who lives and breathes choir, or in your university, the one who wants to be the DCA somewhere versus the accounting major who just loves to sing or the community member who just likes to get together and sing once a week isn't really that interested in putting a ton of time into it after or outside of rehearsal or the high school kid who takes it for well my friends are in here and it's kind of fun and it's an easy a but there are experiences we can help give them that will build those passions so they can understand their own priorities and if we set that example by doing that ourselves, they'll be much more willing to kind of go for things and buy in and try new things that may require vulnerability and be scary at first. And I don't really know exactly how passion develops, but somehow there has to be some kind of emotional connection. So on the first day of school, I tell my students point blank, and I write them on the board, and I have them write them down too. As I say, these are my five priorities as a choral conductor at this high school. Number one, developing emotional intelligence, leadership, and problem-solving skills. Number two, singing with the best technique possible. Number three, singing substantial music and understanding the historical context of the repertoire we sing. Number four, singing as an ensemble with individual singer responsibility, and five, developing musical literacy skills. 
So they know from day one that everything that I do fits into helping them develop one of those five things. And I guess you could say they are in order of most significant to least significant in the top five. And I have other priorities and and obligations, I guess you could say, too, in terms of artistry and text meaning and things like that. But they don't fit in the top five for me. And the beautiful thing about choir is everybody listening is going to have a different set. If I had... If I asked you to make your top five priorities, we would get as many different answers as people listening. And you can hear that in choir performances. You go to a concert, you can hear their priorities. You can hear what they they focus on in class or in their rehearsal. So my students buy into the things that I do in class because if they have a question, they ask And I'm very transparent all the time with every instruction, with every activity, with every song, with the exact reason we're doing it, how it fits in those five things. And, you know, that's why it's great then when they go to college and they'll get a different conductor who has different priorities and they become a more well-rounded musician. But I think without setting those priorities and focusing on them, there's an opportunity for like water to fall through the colander. <laughs> and if we if we can really focus then those priorities, all of a sudden we help them catch much more of that water. So like like was mentioned, singing substantial historical music and then having the students understand how that music fits historically in the composer's output that composer in the timeline of Western musical history, or if we're doing a non-Western piece, like how it fits in world music history, or whatever the case may be, they, when they understand those things, they sing it in a completely different way. And the audience may not pick up on how it's, they sing different, but they totally sing different. Uh, and it's really cool to see. So... As was mentioned in the previous episode about my story, when I understood I had that really significant experience with listening to early music, all of a sudden it became one of my passions to perform not just early music but historical music and to help the students understand how it fits. Because as I did that, I enjoyed every piece of music so much more. Even the pieces of music that I didn't initially like or wouldn't have liked before I understood it better, so I enjoyed singing it more. And I found that to be true for the singers in Sound of Ages, who are professionals, and the singers at the high school level, and the singers at the junior high level, because it's a universal principle. So... If you're trying to, it doesn't, again, it doesn't really matter what your priorities are as long as you're very aware of what they are and why they are. Then you implement how to go about achieving those priorities and being transparent with your students because that transparency builds trust, which is like more than half the battle. We turn next to our interview with conductor of 
choirs at Provo High School, Kenny Weiser. Kenny and I were students together in our master's program at Brigham Young University, and I learned a lot from Kenny, and I think his experience teaching high school is probably similar to many others whose career has been in the public education system. And I've had a lot of articulated, really well-articulated conversations with him. So I think that in understanding his priorities, we can see how programs look different and how to take someone's priorities or what someone else is passionate about. And we say, huh, I don't know much about that. I'm going to dive deeper into that. And sometimes we develop different passions and therefore different priorities from those kind of conversations. So we'll turn now to our interview with Kenny Weiser. Kenny, welcome to Early Music Monday. You're our first guest. (laughs) I'm really um, flattered uh, and I guess really surprised that you would choose me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I chose to interview you because we're good friends, so I know you'd say yes. And, uh, and you have a completely different set of perspective, I guess not set, but a different perspective to how you approach programming and repertoire and really the, the choral classroom that I find really valuable because you are a veteran teacher, you're well known around the state. And I, I just think that that expertise can be really valuable to people listening. So, so well, I hope so. Don't oversell me here. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. They'll see. They'll see. And it'll be awesome. So uh, let's just start with a couple of questions. My first question is, is like, what is your approach to programming in general? Let's say we're in a normal school year or a hybrid school year. It doesn't really matter, I guess your approach to programming? Um, I think, I mean, in a high school classroom setting is what, which is what I'm really familiar with is what I always start with is I want to teach the kids something historical. Um, and I want to, I want to teach the kids something that's uh, interesting to them. And, and sometimes you find that all in, in a historical piece and sometimes you don't. And some, and so it's a, it's, it's kind of a tough balance you have to find. Um, so what in your mind, I just want to stop you there. What, what do you then, how do you discover what is interesting to them? Like if you're a new teacher, how do you go about doing that? It's hard. And I think, I think part of it is you have to not try to read their mind. Like, don't try to guess into it too much because um, I just think back on my own experience. What are some of my favorite historical pieces that I've enjoyed singing? Mm. And why did I enjoy singing those pieces? Right. Because did I enjoy it because it was really complex? Then it's probably not a good choice for high school. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Did I enjoy it because it was really unique and odd and harmonically crazy? No, like that's probably not a good choice. You know, for example, I mean, Poulenc has some really cool stuff, but that's really hard to do <laughs> for right. a high school group. So it right. takes a special group for that. So, so I think you, you got to choose historical music that you gravitate towards. 
um, sure. historical music that that you like um, and that you're passionate about. Yeah. Um, and then from there, you find what works for the ensemble you have in front of you. Gotcha. And what about like, just in general, like I know this is early music Monday, but just in general, your approach to programming things that would be interesting to them. What are some things that you've learned over the years where you can kind of predict what will be interesting to them, whether it's historical or not? Sure. So I remember my very first year teaching, um, I was terrified. And right. <laughs> I was terrified about the music I chose. And I spent hours, you can ask my wife, I spent hours <laughs> on my piano at home over the summer, yeah. like painstakingly, like, do I choose this or this? I don't know. They're going to hate it all. <laughs> I know. But one of the, and I think it's pure dumb luck um, that I chose some really great things that year because I didn't really know what I was doing. I look sure. back on it now and I go, that was really way too hard. Yeah. I'm, I'm surprised we were successful with that. Right. But anyway, one of the really successful pieces that we had was All My Trials by Norma Luboff. Oh, awesome. And it's not like early music, but it's, it's, it has historical significance. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's the other thing to keep in mind when you're dealing with high school kids. These are kids that are born um, after the year 2000 nowadays. <laughs> that is weird. I know. It's really weird to think of. But Freaking weird. Stuff that we would have thought was not that old from the 80s is yeah. considered historically significant. And it has mm-hmm. a lot of educational value to these kids. That's a good point. So, so I think when we think of teaching historical music in high school, we have to be careful and think like we don't have to go back to the Middle Ages. Yeah, true. You can. You can. Right. And there's some cool stuff there. I'm not saying don't go there, but you don't have to. You know, there's plenty of historically significant music in the 20th century, even. Oh, yeah. Tons in the 20th century. That gives us, that I think still gives kids a historical perspective and and has a lot of educational value to it. So so when when I'm talking about choosing something historical, I'm not just thinking medieval period or renaissance. Right. I'm really thinking of anything in the choral music um, um. songbook you know from from 1400s all the way to 1950 i think yeah i think anything that window or or the 90s even you know because even um jazz from the roaring 20s you know cole porter or you know any of those tunes are those are old songs to these kids i mean they're all songs now they're over 100 years old now so Hmm. I, i think there's there's a lot broader picture than I think some people take when you think about a historical song for high school. I think that's totally true. And I think as long, again, the shaping it to be in this early music Monday podcast, the vision of sound of ages choir has broadened to be really all historical music, not just early music, but, but really putting all music in its historical place and how that's relevant to today. So I think if you can do that with, with even a piece, you you can call it academic historical music or not so, or like educational. So like you have an Arvo Pert piece that's pretty straightforward. He wrote it in 2007, but he's been writing for, I think like 180 years I'm just kidding. He's so old that his style's changed a lot. How does his piece fit in today? 
but he's kind of seen as a academic composer or a historical composer for that matter. Right. Cause he's using tried and true methods. Right. Mixed with a, a modern spin on things, you know, even Eric Whitaker has been around long enough that he's kind totally. of an old, old, old dog in the choral composer world for kids, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. So, so I guess then when you're, so let me pause. Okay. Now kind of shifting gears from programming, let's say you've picked your music, you know, and every conductor has their own musical priorities. So if you had a, like to list one through 10, what your priorities are as a conductor and educator, what would you list, you know, maybe not down to a T, but what are some of those top priorities that you have? That's a tough question because the longer I teach, the more that changes Mm. and the more I wrestle with things. Um, And I I think even in your question, I would answer it differently. um, If, if I was listing my priorities as a conductor versus my priorities as an educator, Mm. I think, I think even then, my priorities shift a little bit depending on sure. what, what is my role. If this is, yeah. if I'm conducting a serious ensemble, my priorities are a little different than, than if I am teaching my beginning choir, yeah. right? Mostly freshmen, you know, that's there. I take more of an educator role, but with my chamber singers, I'm definitely blending educator conductor a lot more. Ob- yeah, obviously that's right. And, and I think that that's, what we all kind of do. How do you, how do you navigate that uh, in terms of like, what are some priorities I guess that you have? Yeah. So, so that being said, let's talk about those priorities that I do have as an educator. um, I've, I've really come into this one a lot in the last year or so of how important it is to me. I'm not good at it yet. I don't think, (laughs) but it's important to me. I'm sure you're awesome at it, (laughs) but um, relationships. Mm. Um, I'm putting a quote, a giant quote up on my wall in my classroom this year. Um, and it's see if I don't botch it cause it's still fresh and it's still new. And so I'm not forgetting, I'm not remembering it well, but it's by Fred yeah. King. He's a, he's a legendary barbershop composer, singer guy, nice. but I love it. He, it says the music doesn't make the relationships. It's the relationships that make the music. Mm. I like that. And I just think there's, there's a really wonderful sentiment in that idea. Yeah. And it, it helps the students the moment they walk into your room, realize that this is more than what we're about is about more than making music together. It's, it's about being together. It's about building those relationships with one another. It's about teamwork. It's about collaboration and uh, understanding that the individual is important in this room. Yeah. And, and finding your place as an individual kind of in a team mm-hmm. that creates something bigger than yourself. Right. And I, yeah, yeah. No, go for it. No. And I think as an educator and as a conductor, I think that holds a place at like top spot and top priority for both even because as a conductor, if, if you don't have that relationship, then your singers are always guessing, hmm. you know, they're, they're like, okay, what is, what does a conductor want me to do next? What does a conductor want me to do next? 
Whereas if, if building relationships with one another is a priority for them, then they're probably more willing to take some risk and, yeah. and to take some ownership of decision-making on their own. And, and if that's the case, then they're more likely to um, bring their best self, bring their best singer, bring their best uh, mind to the project we're working on. That's cool. Yeah. I really like that. And I think you, that, that's something I think that people who are in choir and the lay person, I guess, can understand is that they can remember who they were with when they first heard their favorite song, because it, there's that the music really does connect people, you know, fans of certain bands are like instant besties because they're like, Oh, Taylor Swift's new album is your favorite thing in the world. Me too. Let's be best friends. Like there's something about the music that ties you together. But then when you're creating the music, you tie together first and that makes the music happen kind of seamlessly and organically. And Uh that's cool. For sure. And I I even think back to when I was in high school, I sang in my Mm -hmm. all state choir, my senior year. And I remember feeling I was the only kid in my school in that choir. And but yet I didn't feel alone. Yeah. You know, because we were all coming together and we were singing, you know, Sleep by Eric Whitaker or Narate Turbe by John Simcoe. And, and Rolla Dilworth was our conductor. And it was, it was just so great um, because we, I, I still think back on that and I, I think, man, that was such a great experience. And it was because everybody like had that openness about them and and they just kind of brought their best. I and I didn't get to know a ton of people from that experience, but because we all had that attitude about it, the experience was really memorable. Yeah, and, and you, made the music more special. Right, cuz you connect through that even if you, you know, maybe if you met one of those people on the street today and you were like, "Oh, you were in that." I'm sure you'd have an instant flood of memories and an emotional memory together. I think that's what that main priority of yours, I think is shared for a lot of conductors because that's the experience they had. And that's what makes choir so amazing. Anyway, you see all of these, if you're a choir nerd like me, you follow all these choirs on Facebook and they're all sharing these like help us like we have to make music again together really soon they're they're all like desperate like choirs are desperate to get together again and it's because of that shared experience that is so hard to recreate in any other world that really fills a part of our soul that we didn't even know needed filled right so i think that that's a really strong shared sentiment so I agree. I think going back to your question about priorities as a conductor and an educator, mm-hmm. I yeah. think, I think um, once, once students feel safe in your classroom, then you can really dig into some, some skill building and learning and, and some, some really great things can happen. Um, I think as a, I think intonation, being able to sing in tune is so important as an educator that like, that's a really important skill kids need to learn how to do. <laughs> right. And, um, but there's so many factors to being able to sing in tune. Part of it is aural skill. Can mm-hmm. you hear that it's in tune or out of tune? 
Um, and the other part of it is a, is a physical skill. Um, do you have the, the flexibility in your voice to be able to manipulate it, to recreate the pitch that you want to, that you want to make happen? Um, being in public education, you get kids who love to sing, who have a really hard time matching pitch. And I, re I still remember I had, I had one guy come in his freshman year and the kid just could not match pitch period. <laughs> Yeah. Period. I mean, he had a range of about, you know, three notes and he's yes. really monotone and they're all really low. Um, and even when I would like play a higher note, his voice wouldn't go there at all. But right. over time, like I realized that that wasn't because he couldn't hear it. Um, it was because he didn't know how to make his voice do it. Mm. He didn't know how to make his voice match what he heard. Um, but over time, you know, that kid, he loved music so much. He stuck with it because he, he just loved being in choir. He loved that feeling and, and he stuck with it. And by the time he was a senior, um, he had picked up the bagpipes, learned oh, how to play wow. the bagpipes, which is really cool. Um, and so I wanted to have him feel really special, um, his senior year and get a chance to do something cool with us. Cause he's never the kind of kid that's going to get a solo or some cool feature. And so we, I chose to do the song Amazing Grace and have him play a little um, introduction for us. Yeah. So, so, um, so anyway, I had him start working on Amazing Grace and he learned it and it was great. And I need, but the problem is he was playing it in like a key that was a step off from what the choir was practicing and there was a piano accompaniment going on with it. Oh, gotcha. <clears throat> And I was so proud of that kid. He learned how to tune his bagpipes on, on his own. Wow. To retune his instrument so that he could play in the same key as us. That's awesome. And for a kid to go from just not being able to match pitch at all to making it, making it into an auditioned choir, expanding his vocal range, he never sang out of tune his senior year. Wow. He always sang the right notes. He always knew his part and he learned how to tune his bagpipes to play along with us in the right key. Like that was just amazing. Yeah. That's so, insane. That's awesome. Yeah. That was super cool. But I think intonation is, is a big thing that's high on my list, helping kids do that. Another yeah. thing that I like to do at the high school is I like, I love teaching barbershop tags. Yeah. I was, I had barbershop on the list. That's what I was going to wrap up with because, so. because in, in, at least in Utah for anybody listening, who's not from Utah, Kenny is a, a barbershop guru for sure. And is known for his skills in that world and has won awards and all kinds of things. So I was getting to that. I, I'm glad you brought it up. Continue. Well, yeah. I mean, it wouldn't be an interview with me if I didn't mention barbershop. So <laughs> I think this is the second time because the quote earlier was from a barbershop guy. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was like, so I was like, yes, I knew you we were getting there sometime. <laughs> so anyway, barbershop tags really short. It's, it's like the coda of a song. Right. So tune. And so, um, barbershop singing has this really strong tradition of just passing on, um, tags amongst each other orally without without sheet music without writing it down and i remember um as a kid i was like man how do you remember all these words how do you remember all these notes how do you remember how it fits in with everyone else because once they start singing you forget yeah but i mean it's really exhilarating when you figure it out yeah 
Oh, it is. I, it, I mean, I, there's, there's no other feeling like there's nothing that I can, that I've ever experienced. That's the same as that kind of feeling you get when you finally remember your part, everyone else remembers their part and you sing it so in tune that you just like, it's like when one of my college professors would say your endorphins start to dance. Cause it's so in tune, you know? Yeah. You get the buzz. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's legit. And that's a great feeling and it's acapella. Um, you can, you, there's ones that are as easy as one person sings one note cry the whole time. So if you have yeah. somebody who really is having a hard time hearing, you just say, do this. Just post for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and so there's easy ones, there's hard ones. You can do them in different keys to work with any type of ensemble um, with a mixed ensemble, treble voices, bass voices, whatever. And, and you, they're so adaptable. Um, they're, and the kids love them. You can do them in quartets. We have little quartet competitions sometimes. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's a fun way to sing. And at the same time, you're really building a strong um, sense of oral recognition. Oh yeah. Tonal, and, that, and tonal memory and intonation with other people. It's crazy. Right. And independence because you're doing yes. it by yourself, which is super crucial. Uh, that kind of musicianship independence, I think is super valuable. So yeah, the years that I incorporate tag singing into my curriculum um, in a way that's not overt and, and, <laughs> and like, I'm not trying to force it down, but I, but I include it enough that it feels authentic and genuine and, and, and like a fun, enjoyable thing. Those are the years my choirs just sing in tune. Yeah. And by the end of the year, when we're learning new stuff, they learn it so fast because they have that oral recognition just down that t ability yeah. to remember where, where the next note's going to be and how it fits into the chords around them. Yeah. That's awesome. So my last question, uh, um, I, I would, I, I have some thoughts about, cause I think that, well, let me just share one thing and then I'll, I'll ask you my last question. I, I think that it's super interesting about uh, myself, my priorities. One of my top priorities is singing healthy because my high school conductor was a brilliant musician and I learned amazing sight reading skills and amazing um, like musicianship skills. Um, but I don't remember talking about technique very much and I just had a lot of bad habits. So for me, it's like singing healthy and the years when I really spend time focusing on like solid, true technique, they sing in tune, mm -hmm. but the, it, it, might take shorter period of time if you like coupled that with tag singing, because I feel like their independent aural skills maybe don't get developed quite as much on those years because I'm so like hyper-focused on technique. So it would be interesting to see mm -hmm. if, if, if one of these years I could fuse those together and see if it's like this magic recipe for like, <laughs> tag singing really well you know, cause I feel like I miss half the ball with just technique or, or, you know, if, if it's, you know, they got this great skill, but they miss the technique that it'll never quite work getting from it, here to here. Sure. Right. So it's a teaming I up, you. I think. And I, and that's my downfall is I, I struggle managing my time because oh, yeah. I love building the voice and I love, spending time on like helping them create this awesome sound. 
but then I run out of time to do the repertoire that we're learning for our next concert, you know? And so that's always a struggle for me. And lately I've been trying to find a better balance, but I've noticed that I'm too much on the repertoire side and not enough on the voice building side. And so, yeah. you know, other things I'm like, that normally doesn't happen in my choirs, but it's happening now. And I, I just have to go back to tracing back that we're not spending as much time building the voice. Right. And plus every ensemble is different. Uh, oh, yeah. Every ensemble needs, to a, needs a different balance of um, work that you do. But I think every everyone needs some component of building oral skills, building the voice, building healthy habits, and a good amount of, you know, just sing the repertoire, apply what, yeah. apply what we learned. Kind of yeah, thing. I think I'm definitely going to try some tag singing. One of these years when I'm brave enough. I just am too scared still. Whatever. Yeah. And that's, no, for that's real. my biggest thing. <laughs> like, it's the same concept with early music. A lot of people don't do early music because it's scary because they don't yeah. understand it. Right. But at the end of the day, once you start singing it, it's like, oh, this makes sense. You yeah. Know, it's like, Maybe I'll do tags with Renaissance and we'll just sing and we'll call them openings and we'll do like the first page. Like, <laughs> See, it's cool. Or the first cadence. <laughs> <laughs> so my last question is, you have a passion for barbershop music because this is the hard part, right? It's really hard to sell a piece of music to your group that you're not passionate about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I'm really passionate about Renaissance. So when I give my students Renaissance, they kind of are like, what the heck is this at first? And then after about four rehearsals, when they see me just like, you guys, this is unreal. And like freak out and like fangirl hardcore for it. They like slowly think it's cool because their teacher thinks it's cool. Yep. So, so with you. And I know you were really good at that. <laughs> I've seen, well, <laughs> I've seen your middle school choirs sing Britain's ceremony of carols. And it was amazing. Well, thank you. It, it was, <laughs> I loved it. And, I, and, and the I kids loved it. I could tell they loved it. They, they still ask me if they can sing it. And I don't know why, again, other than I just love it. <laughs> so, so how do you, let's say, so for you, it's barbershop and, and maybe contemporary, like these really great, but I feel like your passion kind of spans a lot of time periods. But what if, what if you get a piece that you're like, man, it fits in the program. It really will teach them something. It's from the Renaissance, which, but it's not like your favorite one, but you don't dislike it either. Like, what do you do as the teacher conductor to to sell it to them how do you sell it how, yeah. or, or how do you gain a passion for it yourself that's a familiar situation you've described here that's a familiar <laughs> scenario uh, and i think most high, most choral directors find themselves in that scenario where they're trying to round out a program trying to find something that contrasts but has you like i don't know it still teaches stuff and and i think I mean, the very first thing I would do is just make sure it's the right choice. Yeah. Is there another piece that could teach them the same thing? Maybe from another time period, maybe mm -hmm. from the same time period, maybe, it, you know, is it, is it really the best choice? That's the first thing I would do. If awesome. you've already started rehearsing it and you're like concerts in a, in a bit and they know it, they just don't love it yet, then, okay, then it's time to do some real soul searching. Right. <laughs> As yeah. a director, I, I start thinking, okay, why, why do I really feel like this piece is worth putting in front of an audience? 
Mm. You know, at, at the end of the day, what makes me excited to hear that or, or why is it important for an audience to hear that? Um, and, and sometimes it's because of the text and how it connects to other songs that you're singing. Sometimes it's because of the contrast that it provides in your program. Sometimes it's because of uh, the unity that it adds to your program. Maybe it's kind of a blah piece, you know, that maybe it's not your super favorite, but you have something super heavy right before and something super heavy right after. You need something to kind of help the kids have a vocal rest or in the audience. the palate. Yeah. Sometimes you just need stuff like that in a program and helping. I mean, as a director, you have to know why it's there. Yeah. And sure. And if, if you know why it's there, then it's not hard to, to have the kids jump on board. It might not be their favorite piece. Sure. And that's okay. You know, not every piece has to be their favorite piece, but it has to be yeah. something that, that they understand why you chose it so that they can give you their best. Yeah. And I think that transparency then with them, like, look, this is why we're doing this. It, it may not be your favorite, but it, it's really important because of this, this, and this. And do you see how it fits together? Is yeah. Crucial. So like I have an example of that when I was working on my master's recital with my high school choir, um, the girls were doing this awesome piece, um, Pablo Casals Negro Sum. Oh and yeah. We had, and we had the organ come in and join us. It was so That's great. awesome. You know, and, and so I wanted to find something with unique, instru- with a unique accompaniment instrument for the guys to sing. That is something a little bit different from what they used to do. And so, uh, and so we chose to do Ode to Women by Nice. Now I'm forgetting if it's Haydn or Handel, but that's not important. I can't we did Ode to Women. But it's the early uh, music person doesn't remember. That's not good. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, and we, we did it in German, which was a challenge, but we had it with the harpsichord, and that was kind of a cool neat oh, thing. So but the cool. problem is we didn't have the harpsichord to practice with. Sure. And so it was really hard for the guys to catch the vision on that one. Mm-hmm. and to see how it fit in with everything. Um, and so rehearsing that was a real struggle. And yeah. every time we practiced it, they would like drug their feet and <laughs> like groan out loud. Yeah. And so, and so, I mean, I really had to, every, every rehearsal I had to explain why it fit in the program, why I felt passionately about it, why I thought it was really cool and, and kind of trust me, it's going to be worth it. Let's make it happen. Let's give yeah. it our best. And, you know, they, didn't give it their best, but it still was good. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so they're better. They gave it yeah. their better. Yeah. And once they heard it with the harpsichord, you know, I started going, Oh yeah. They started to catch the vision for it then. And, and that's hard. You had looking back on it, I could have chosen a better piece, but sure. it's making the most of a, of a tricky situation with those kids. Yeah. Well, I think that's great. And you shared so many thoughts that makes, I mean, this is a great time for me to re, be rethinking about the programming and, and my approach to, to how do I pitch the piece to them and, and why am I choosing certain songs and, and that kind of thing. And so I really appreciate your expertise and uh, your being willing to come on here and, and share your thoughts. It, it's you, your experience has taught you a lot and, I admire a lot of what you do. So I think it's great. Well, thanks for having me, Cam. It's, it's great to be with you. I, I think I, in closing, I would just go back to the, one of the first things we said, and that's historical music to an audience and to yeah. our students 
is a lot broader than sometimes we think. Oh yeah. You know, especially me. We think, we think of early music and it's got to be earlier than 1700. Yeah. You know, cause you that, know, yeah. Right. Yeah. But there's, you could have a whole program of historical, historically relevant music that spans from 1980 all the way to, you know, 1450 or whatever. And right. it could all be considered historically relevant and, and academic in, in lots of ways for, for kids. So when you're planning and trying to find a good historical piece, it doesn't have to be Mozart. It doesn't have to be Palestrina. There's so many, so oh, yeah. many options available to us. We don't have to get stuck in those places. And it doesn't have to be traditional choral music either. Mm, true, true. Oh, I'm sure we could go off on a whole yeah. can of worms about that, but oh, maybe yeah. that's another discussion. <laughs> I'll be back another time because I think that that's a super interesting avenue too that I've thought a lot about. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, I'd love to. That sounds fun. This is hey, lots of fun. Good, I'm glad. That, that's, it's like it, the good old days back at BYU. I know, uh, <laughs> and it's so good, and it, I just think it. You know, as silly as it is to feel like yeah i'm doing a podcast i think the discussion element of it really spurs so many thoughts for people listening other than just me sitting here sprouting well this is why early music is relevant you know what do i know i don't you know it's like so i think that i really appreciate you being willing to, to do it to do it and to share your thoughts it's awesome happy to man Okay. Kenny, thank you. Farewell. Go back to your kids before they come attack you with knives for dinner. (laughs) Sounds like a plan. (laughs) Okay. See you, man. Our composer profile is on John Dunstable. If you haven't heard of John Dunstable, you're probably not alone. And I I have only heard of him just a couple years ago. And the reason why I think John Dunstable is a really fascinating figure in musical history is because of the role he played along with... uh, one particular contemporary of his, Lionel Power, those two together really, but John Dunstable probably, perhaps more so, really kind of started to establish what we know as triads in in a way that made this kind of organized sense. So there's not very much known about his life, um... But he was such a high-profile musician that he was written about by many of his contemporaries, uh, musicians and non-musicians alike. So he was the resident composer for John, the Duke of Bedford, and he was also an astronomer and a mathematician. So he had this concept that he became known for in England, the concept of what they called in quotes, the sweet third. The more official name in Latin is the continence angloise, which is the English countenance. And this this whole concept transformed Western music. 
And as it slowly made its way over to the continent, it started to implement itself throughout all of Western Europe. And, you know, if you take some of this medieval music before him, there weren't very, like, when you get to a cadence point, there was no third. It was end on an open fifth. You would per, you would have triads occasionally throughout the piece, but the predominant harmonic language was that open fifth, open octave idea. And John Dunstable would do stuff like have lots of chords in first inversion, so the third is on the bottom, like parallel in succession, like four or five chords in succession in these full kind of triads with a root, a third, and a fifth. This is really cool when you study, when you look at him and compare him to early, early, early Dufay music and kind of compare the difference and feel how open Dufay sounds compared to how, you know, tonal almost, quote, unquote, that John Dunstable sounds. And it's a, he's so, because of that, though, he's very approachable as a medieval composer for an audience and for students. So for an easy piece of music, a beginning-level piece, I would say you could do his Quam Pulcra S, which is for ATB. This piece is totally doable by advanced junior high, intermediate junior high, and up. It's a little tricky just in terms of it's still a little foreign to our ears to sing with that kind of modal harmony. And some of the rhythms are kind of tricky, but with some practice and some well-thought-out rehearsal plan, you could do it. And you could have all the ladies sing the alto part or raise it a few steps and have the altos and high tenors sing the middle part if you have unchanged voices. Um, another option is to have the choir sing the alto line in unison or in octaves and then have a keyboard instrument play the rest of the parts. Um, and it's fairly short. There's, you know, modifications that you can make to fit your group, and it's really, it's a, there's a lot of homophony in it, and it sounds, it has that medieval sound without being vastly complicated. Another piece that's similar is Ave Regina Celorum, which is for soprano, alto, and tenor. An intermediate level piece would be Specios, spe, I can't even say this, Speciosa uh, Facta S. This could easily, it's, this is for soprano, alto, and tenor, and it could be done by a three-part chorus of any kind. You could also do like the soprano alto parts and have the tenor be played by, by an instrument. Again, you could once again do the unison with the accompaniment option. The rhythms are a little bit more complicated than Kwampu Kraes, so that's why I put it in the intermediate category because making sure that it stays together is a little bit trickier. And as for the advanced level piece, or the difficult piece, uh, I would say Veni Sancte Spiritus for SATB. So this piece is what they call an isorhythmic motet, meaning that, you know, he splits the piece into three sections and 
each section has, or, or several sections. I, I can't remember actually exactly how many sections it is. It's been a while since I've looked at it, but, and each section has the same melod- melodic and harmonic content, more or less, with maybe slight variation, but then each section is rhythmically proportioned proportioned to the other sections in some way. So it'd be like, you know, the first rhythms are uh, twice as long as the second section, and then those rhythms are a third as long as the next section, or three times longer, or whatever. And it's this mathematically rhythmic puzzle, and... Uh, but it's pretty complicated to keep it together, and it's longer, and the ranges for ATB, I mean, the sopranos are probably fine, but the altos, tenors, and basses, the, the ranges are much more extreme, and crossing over passaggio points often. But, you know, if you were going to put this on, like, an ACDA program or something like that, it would be a really cool kind of color piece for that to to give your program a completely different tonal world to to explore and that concludes our composer profile on john dunstable thank you so much for joining us on early music monday we had a good discussion about conductor priorities and how to kind of build those around things that you're passionate about be transparent about them a good discussion with Kenny Weiser, the director of choirs at Provo High School, and our composer profile on John Dunstable. Subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating. It's much appreciated, and we'll see you next time on Early Music Monday. <laughs>